I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, surgery might be a precise art today, but it used to be a blood sport. He was removing the patient's leg, and he was moving so fast that he accidentally took off his assistant's finger. And as he was switching instruments, he slashed the coat of a spectator, and that guy died of fright. Then big philanthropy is replacing big government. There's a kind of growing vacuum in terms of government's ability to be an agent of change, and philanthropy is moving into that vacuum. And money can't buy happiness, but it can buy time, which might be just as good. People don't do a very good job of knowing what's going to make them happier. The very few people in our sample who said that they would spend that money on time, when we actually give people money, that those people are better off. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In the mid-1800s, if you happened to be a Quaker born in England, there were lots of things you couldn't do. Hunt, attend theater performances, play sports. But there was one pastime, maybe kind of unexpectedly, that was totally okay. Science. Which is probably why a man named Joseph Lister, you know his name from the product named after him, Listerine, it's probably why he ended up throwing himself into scientific study and changing medicine forever. The story of how he did that is both brilliant and gruesome. Lindsay Fitzharris has written about it in The Butchering Art, Joseph Lister's quest to transform the grisly world of Victorian medicine. Lindsay, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So what did surgeons do in, let's say, like the 1820s, which is when Joseph Lister was born? Um, what was their role? In the early 19th century, they were more akin to barbers, and they were actually, there was barber surgeons in the late 18th, early 19th centuries, and they kind of did everything. They didn't just uh, deal with your hair. Um, they, <laughs> so, the barbers... Wait, 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 wait. They were cutting your hair and amputating they, your leg They were, also? yeah. They Whoa. could be. Um, in the late 18th century, the barber surgeons, they did a lot of bloodletting. That was their, their number one um, service mm. that they offered. And in fact, the red and white barber's pole comes from the fact that the barbers were bloodletters. What they would do is they would take the bloody rags from their patients and they would tie them on a pole outside of their shop and that these Yikes. these rags would wrap around the pole and create that red and white stripes that we're familiar with today. Hmm. It's kind of like how your dentist sends you, you know, a reminder that you need a cleaning and it's it's like usually like a toothbrush that's smiling. It's that it was kind of like that like you'd walk past the barber shop and you think, "Well, I need to go in for my my monthly bloodletting." So they did all kinds of things. They did bloodletting, they lanced boils. They dealt with the external part of the body. Hmm. But when we get to the 19th century, when we get to uh, Joseph Lister's time, bloodletting has gone to the wayside a bit. Some of the surgeons were incredibly interesting characters. Um, one of my favorites is this man named Robert Liston. He was known as the fastest knife in the West End, and he could take your leg off in under 30 seconds. <laughs> sounds like a guy. It sounds like a guy in Arizona in like the Tombstone days. He was like the fastest <laughs> yeah. draw in the West, like the fastest yeah, knife absolutely. in the West End. That is that is uh, what he was. He could take your leg off 
off in under 30 seconds. He was he was 6'2". <laughs> he was very large for the 19th century. And um, he could hold you down with his left hand. And in fact, wow. he would move so fast that he, when he was switching instruments, he would hold the bloody instruments in his mouth, which really underlies how far we've come right. uh, with right. hygiene and our understanding of disease. But if you were living in a pre-anesthetic era, you wanted someone like Liston. You wanted the fastest knife in the West End because you mm. certainly wouldn't want to be you know, struggling against the knife as your leg is taken off oh for a long God. period of time. And, and we're talking about also a time where there was basically no anesthesia. Yes. Um, so the discovery of ether happens in 1846. Um, and I think that if anybody thinks about the history of surgery, which might be unlikely, um, but if anybody has <laughs> given it any thought, they think of the moment that anesthesia is discovered. It's the age of agony is over. We have conquered pain. You don't have the, the patient struggling against the knife anymore. But what happens is people don't understand that germs exist. So actually, mm. surgery becomes much more dangerous immediately following the discovery of ether because the surgeon is more willing to pick up the knife. He's more willing to go deeper into the body. And as a result, these operations become slow-moving executions and post-operative infection rises. So let's, I want to go back to Robert Liston for a second. And Liston and Lister have similar names, but they are not, <laughs> yes, they're not yeah. related. But, but Robert Liston, this, as you say, like overpowering surgeon, incredibly fast at cutting people up. You tell this story of one time when he did a surgery and not only did the patient die, but there were more deaths, even though there he wasn't, he was only operating. I don't know how you can kill other people who are not being operated on, but do you want to it's tell that story? It's an impressive, yeah, it's an impressive feat. It's one of my favorite stories about Liston. Um, he's sort of a bigger than life character, and, and he adds a lot of color into the butchering art because of that. But he was operating on a patient. He was removing the patient's leg, and he was moving so fast that he accidentally took off his assistant's finger. And as he was oh switching God. instruments, he slashed the coat of a spectator, and that guy died of fright. And oh um, the assistant he died. died. of fright. He, that's what it said in the historical record. He died of fright, which oh. is impressive in and of itself. The assistant died of gangrene later. It, it, his hand became infected mm-hmm. and the patient died as well. And so it's kind of jokingly referred to as the only operation with a 300 percent mortality rate. <laughs> mm. Let's talk about how um, medicine was changing at the moment that Joseph Lister got involved. I mean, obviously, we've got these huge problems with, as you say, you know, surgery is kind of up to the whims of however good your surgeon is, which might not be good at all. We've got dirt problems, I mean, in hospitals. And into this, Joseph Lister comes into these very dirty hospitals. And, you know, obviously, he wants to be a doctor. What is happening at the moment that he gets into medicine? Well, he enters medical school in 1848, and um, at this point, the hospitals are growing. There, there's these big urban hospitals that are springing up because the population is also exploding at this time. But keep in mind that the hospitals were only places that you went if you were poor. Okay. Um, you didn't go if you were wealthy or middle class. You were treated in, in your own home. And it was also really what historians call the deserving poor because you still had to bring some level of income to cover um, various fees associated with it. For instance, huh. some hospitals charged you for your inevitable burial because it was so expected you were going to die in wow. these places. Um, other hospitals charged you, um, if you if they deemed you extra foul. So these places were grimy and dingy. Uh, in 1825, a patient had wriggling maggots and mushrooms growing in the damp-soiled sheets of his hospital bed. Um, and what's crazy is he didn't even feel the need to complain about this. Um, it was so expected that these were the conditions. So this is what Lister steps into in the 1840s right. when he enters medical school. School. You write about a hospital where there was a chief bug catcher. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, the best, I always say the best that could be said about these 19th, these early Victorian hospitals is that they were a slight improvement over their 18th century predecessors, <laughs> which is insane much because yeah. you're right, the bug catcher was paid more than the surgeon and the doctor wow. in the 18th century. And there's a guy named Andrew Cook who is the bug destroyer, and he claims to have rid 20,000 beds of lice. So when you consider there was that many lice in the yeah. hospitals, you can understand why he was paid pretty well. Right, right. So, yeah, so into this comes Joseph Lister. Yeah, so Lister inherits this grimy world, and it had reached such a problem that it was seriously suggested that the only way to control infection was to just burn the hospitals down from time to time and just start anew. And I kind of love that imagery, this idea of, you know, you think of the hospitals today, just like imagine burning these buildings down. This is the world that he steps into. Um, And I always like to remind people, too, that going into medicine, making that decision was um, a dangerous one as well, because this is a time before mass vaccinations. It's a time before antibiotics. People are dying of diseases like smallpox. You're exposing yourself to huge dangers as you walk onto these wards. And as a result, a lot of um, medical students and, and doctors and surgeons died being exposed to these patients. You know, I mentioned before about Joseph Lister was maybe a little unusual because he was a Quaker, had this family that was, you know, observant in many ways. But one of those things, as I said, is like that science was okay, And in fact, a lot of Quakers were really into science because other some other things were prohibited. And Joseph Lister's father had a really good for the time microscope. That's right. Talk about how microscopes impacted Lister and what he would go on to do. The microscope is very important to the story I tell in The Butchering Art. Um, The microscope had been around for quite some time by the 19th century, but it wasn't accepted as a medical tool. A lot of people in medicine thought that it would make for lazy clinicians, that doctors would stop using their eyes or trusting their eyes to diagnose patients. The other thing was that if you think about it, you're looking down a microscope and whatever you're seeing might not actually impact how you treat a patient ultimately. So it was seen as sort of a frivolous instrument. You know, why would you use the microscope in medicine? Mm. But as you say, Lister was a Quaker, and his father had this huge interest in the microscope. He actually makes a lot of improvements on lenses. And um, Lister grows up with the microscope. So when he goes off to medical school in the 1840s, he brings with him this unusual instrument. Mm. And it's really because of his exposure to the microscope and his father's interest in science that he's so receptive to Louis Pasteur's germ theory down the road. Hmm. And I like to say that this is a love story between science and medicine because it's one of the first instances where a scientific principle, which is germ theory, is applied to medical practice through the development of antisepsis. Hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Lindsay Fitzharris, author of the book, The Butchering Art, Joseph Lister's Quest to Transform the Grisly World of Victorian Medicine. And before Lister um, knew about the work of Louis Pasteur, I assume people just would go from one hospital bed to the next hospital bed and essentially give the second patient the thing that the first patient had because they had no idea that they were transporting germs. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I okay. mean, pa- surgeons rarely wash their hands or their instruments. And mm. it's it's mind-boggling to us because we operate in a world where we know germs exist. But if you think about it logically, why would you keep washing your hands when they were just going to get dirty if you right. didn't understand that germs right, existed? Right, right. So, I mean, the, it, was, it was just such an unhygienic time. Now, there were other people who were working on this problem. Florence Nightingale uh, was working in parallel with Lister on a hygiene movement. She actually didn't at first believe that in germs. She thought that that was a step too far. 
Uh, there was also an Austrian physician named Semmelweis. He was putting together this idea that if you wash your hands before treating patients, that um, post-operative infections or infection rates in general go down. Mm. He was eventually put into a, a lunatic asylum. His colleagues called him the hand washer. Yeah, and really? he kind of died this very yeah. sad um, end to his life. But the difference between Semmelweis and Nightingale and some of these other people who are working on, on this problem and who are working in general on p- improving hygiene in the Victorian period is that they didn't have the agent by which disease was spread. And that's really where Lister comes in. He takes Louis Pasteur's germ theory and he puts the connection together that this is what's causing disease. Mm. And that's really Lister's contribution. So amidst all this, this sort of professional development and advancement of Joseph Lister, his sister gets breast cancer. And at the time, it sounds like breast cancer was something that was pretty close to fatal because... You, it was hard to take a breast off or to do a major operation because you'd have a huge wound and you would just die from that wound. Yeah, anyway. it would get right. infected, right? Yeah, I mean, people, the mastectomies have been going on for quite a long time, even uh, 17th and 18th centuries, again, without any anesthetic, which is mind-boggling. My own mother had a double mastectomy five years ago. And when you think about how routine it almost is in medicine today, um, it just shows how far we've come. Doctors were able to diagnose breast cancer. But again, by the time you could see it, you have to imagine that it was likely that it had spread elsewhere in the body, especially if the breast was necrotizing. It probably was very far along. Those women who survive a mastectomy and end up living a long life, you do have to wonder, was it cancerous or was it just a growth? Mm. But you get plenty of stories of mastectomies. Lister's sister gets breast cancer, and um, she actually approaches several other surgeons before she approaches her brother, and they refuse to do the operation because, just what you said, the open wound would uh, leave her at risk of post-operative infection, which could kill her a lot quicker than the cancer. So the idea was, you know, live out your life. But she goes up to Scotland to visit her brother, and he's just at this point developing his antisepsis techniques, and he decides to do this operation on his own dining room table. And um, it takes it out of him emotionally, as one can imagine. But she does survive. She doesn't develop any post-operative infection. He's very careful to clean everything beforehand, as well as clean out the wound afterwards. And it's sort of a miracle. And I like to say that Lister saved everyone from his sister to Queen Victoria and everybody right. in between. He did. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and that's it. That's another story. Uh, the the Queen. Um, she got an abscess under her armpit, and Lister was called to her bedside, and uh, he was able to remove this abscess and drain it, and she didn't get any kind of infection. And he liked. To quip afterwards that he was the only man who could plunge a knife into the queen and live uh, to, to tell them right, about the experience. Right, right. Um, but yeah, it's really remarkable how many different kinds of people he operated on, how many lives he's changed, how many lives he saved, how many lives he continues to save um, because we now operate with the knowledge of germs. So obviously, he, to some degree, is a celebrated figure, or he never would have been asked to help treat the queen. But can you talk about the resistance to his ideas about, like, this is how things should be. We should use antiseptic. Things should be clean. This is the way surgery should be going forward. 
Yeah, I mean, there was a huge amount of resistance, unsurprisingly. Whenever a paradigm is broken and a, and a new paradigm rises, there's always resistance within the medical and scientific community. And actually, I hope people uh, within these communities read this book and realize that, you know, what we know today isn't going to be what we know tomorrow. And mm-hmm. what are people going to say in 50 or 100 years about us? Mm-hmm. You have to keep that always in mind. Yeah. But he, there was a huge amount of resistance. And it's it's hard for us to understand in the 21st century. But imagine this young man comes around and he says, that there are these invisible creatures and they are killing your patient. Um, And it was a little bit, it was was strange to accept. The other part of that was that essentially what he was telling the older generation surgeons was that they had been inadvertently killing their patients all along. And these were men who had, they were in the the business of saving lives. And I think that was a hard pill to swallow for them. So the Mm -hmm. way that Lister ultimately does triumph is he, he has to get to the younger generation. And he's a teacher up in Scotland. And every year you know, hundreds of students are graduating from his classes and they're going out into the world and they call them the Listerians and they go out and they spread uh-huh. the gospel of antisepsis. And that is ultimately how the change happens. It's a slow burn. Right, right. It's winning over a new generation, it sounds like. It's not so much convincing older people as it is training a new generation of doctors. Yeah, exactly. And and just how we see, you know, progress being made as well to some extent today. Mm-hmm. So this is what happens. He does live into his own fame, um, as you mentioned at the top, that Listerine was named after him. He mm-hmm. came to Philadelphia 135 years ago to convince Americans of the existence of germs. And this man was in the audience and inspired to create this product. It wasn't originally a mouthwash. It was actually used to treat gonorrhea, of all things. Mm. And there was another man in the audience in Philadelphia. His name was Robert Wood Johnson, and he, too, was inspired. He mm. got together with his brothers and created the company Johnson & Johnson. And they produced wow. uh, surgical antiseptic dressing. So there was a lot of little things that came out of his trip to America. But eventually there was this sort of carbolic acid mania and people were creating all kinds of products around it. But it's interesting that he was so famous in his own at the end of his life. He's I like to say that he's a, one of those figures who burns bright in his own time, but then is largely forgotten shortly after. Mm. Because although medical historians and historians in general certainly know of Lister's existence, I feel like the public aren't as familiar with his name. Lindsay Fitzharris is author of the book The Butchering Art, Joseph Lister's Quest to Transform the Grisly World of Victorian Medicine. Lindsay, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. If you'd like to know more about Robert Liston, the surgeon who accidentally cut off his assistant's finger, we've got a link to an article at our website that examines his bloody and colorful life. That's at innovationhub.org. If you know the name Priscilla Chan, you're going to know where I'm going here. If you don't, stick with me. Priscilla Chan was born in 1985, the oldest of three children. Her family did not have a lot of money. Her parents had gotten out of Vietnam as refugees, but she became the valedictorian of her suburban Massachusetts high school. And she went to Harvard, where she met a classmate that she later married. That guy's name was Mark Zuckerberg. The path that Chan has traveled is obviously incredibly unusual. She and her husband are now among the richest people in the world. But the choices that she makes, her priorities, could shape many of our lives. David Callahan writes about the super rich and the billions that they're giving away in The Givers, Wealth, Power, and Philanthropy in a New Gilded Age. He's also the editor of the website Inside Philanthropy. 
David, thanks for your time. Great to be here. So uh, when Priscilla Chan and Mark Zuckerberg announced they're giving away uh, about 99% of their money, there was actually a fair amount of criticism um, and there was backlash. Explain why you think that happened, because as they said, this is a quote, um, they wanted to advance human potential and promote equality, which I think in general is a goal that, uh, you know, most people can get on board with. That depends what your politics are, right? Not everybody's on board with the Koch brothers' agenda, mm-hmm. which has included, uh, you know, drastically reducing the size of government, cutting taxes, cutting entitlement spending, cutting environmental rules. If you're on the right, you're not on the agenda uh, on the same page as George Soros, who's mm-hmm. given hundreds of millions of dollars to advance LGBT rights or to advance civil liberties, mm-hmm. uh, criminal justice reform, and so uh, one of my concerns is that so often this philanthropy is critiqued uh, through an ideological lens. You know, you, depending upon your politics, you complain about the donors on the other side, mm-hmm. you know, what I call a kind of a la carte alarmism, right? <laughs> and, right. If, uh, if, if you're supporting your cause, it's all fine. Keep yeah, going. You're, yeah, you're, yeah, it's yeah. great. Right? What's, what's not to like? Right, if, right. If you believe in, if you're worried about climate change, it's great that Mike Bloomberg is trying to shut down coal-fired power plants. You know, if you work for a coal-fired power plant, you're probably not so excited right. that a Manhattan billionaire is giving lots of money right. for that. The point I'm make in my book is that all of this influence, uh, which is really expanding at a pretty rapid clip uh, by these billionaire donors, uh, exists in some pretty deep tension with the idea of civic equality and that we as citizens should all have an equal say in in how our society runs and what priorities are set. You you think of voters ideally having most influence over where our society goes. I see this philanthropic money often as another form of money in politics. You know, we've all heard about political campaign contributions. We know about the money spent on lobbying. Well, guess what? If you spend a lot of, give a lot of money, tax-deductible gifts, by the way, to think tanks and and advocacy organizations and litigation groups, that's often more effective than giving money to politicians in terms of determining how government operates, what priorities are set, what policies are enacted. And that affects people's lives in a big way. And you said that you'd like to see um, this money spent in sort of a less political, more traditional way. So like supporting the arts or hospitals or underwriting basic scientific research. Um, And I know like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, for example, does a lot with vaccines. Uh, They try to eradicate malaria all over the world. It sounds like that is a way of spending rich people's money uh, that you support. I think that the Gates Foundation has been most impressive and most effective when it comes to saving the lives of, of uh, children in the in the developing world through their vaccination work. I mean, that's been heroic work. In contrast, I think a lot of their giving for K-12 education has been quite controversial and has produced some pretty spectacular missteps in a lot of public concern, like they're spending over giving over $200 million to help usher in the Common Core which has generated a lot of controversy. A lot of people Mm. have viewed that as a kind of backdoor effort to federalize sort of education policy. Others see it as sort of uh, putting forth a bunch of ideas that aren't proven. It's had a lot of mixed reviews. They kind of uh, really uh, used their philanthropic muscle to to make that happen in a dramatic way. That's To me, that's way too much power for a private couple to have in an area, K-12 education, which many of us think of as the most democratic of all public spheres. 
So uh, you talk about uh, the current Gilded Age in your book. Let's go back for a second to the last Gilded Age. How did people respond when, like, the Rockefellers and the Carnegies, who, I mean, once upon a time, uh, but even still now, um, had tons of money to give away, and they said, I want this public program, I want this building to be mine. How did people at that time respond to that? Well, it was interesting. There was tremendous alarm when John D. Rockefeller came forth to set up a, a foundation. By that, this was about 1911. By that time, he had already given away millions and millions of dollars. He was also one of the most notorious kind of robber baron figures of his time. And people didn't like the idea of him having a foundation uh, that used tax-deductible dollars to to, to express his preferences over, over you know, big ideas and, and try to advance different kinds of solutions. They didn't like it so much that that effort was blocked in the U.S. Congress. It was seen as an anti-democratic plot. Mm. The Rockefeller Foundation was ultimately chartered in New York State. Uh, interestingly, though, you know, flash forward 100 years, and for a while, back in the 1990s, when this big new philanthropy was just starting to emerge— People were pretty cheerful about it. You know, there was a lot of enthusiasm. There wasn't a lot of pushback. And I think lately there's been more kind of concern and pushback to this big philanthropy by these billionaire donors as part of a broader concern people have that the wealthy have too much power Mm -hmm. in society. I mean, think about the context here. We live in an age of record inequality. Polls show Americans already believe the wealthy have, have too much power, that the voices of ordinary people aren't being heard. Uh, there's a lot of distrust of elites, as we you know, saw in the last election. Mm-hmm. We live in a populist time. Mm-hmm. And into this situation are coming all these big-time new philanthropists like uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chen w- with even more money than Rockefeller had. Right, <laughs> right, right. right, right. And, and there's more of them. I mean, the big difference right. between now and 100 years ago is there's just many, many more rich people. Mm. There's many more rich people in America than there was 30 years ago. You know, when the Forbes 400 first came out in 19. 19- 82, it only had 13 billionaires. Now there's over 500 billionaires Mm. in America, and quite a few of them are interested in philanthropy, and they're starting to ramp up their giving and doing so in a big way, and a lot of them are focusing on public policy as a leverage point to move their agenda. I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with David Callahan, author of The Givers, Wealth, Power, and Philanthropy in a New Gilded Age. Uh, So you talked about the 1990s as being like the beginning of this new kind of philanthropy. Why? What happened in the 1990s that all of a sudden changed things? Well, when I first started paying attention to philanthropy back in the mid-1990s, big legacy institutions really dominated the field. Uh, You know, the Rockefeller Foundation, Ford Foundation, Carnegie Corporation, places set up by donors long gone. Things really start to change when Ted Turner steps forward uh, with that billion-dollar gift to the United Nations. I remember that. I remember that. Wasn't it that we were not paying our dues to the United Nations or something? uh, It was like, I'm going to fill in here? Uh, yeah, yeah. The, his money, by the way, did not go to the United Nations directly. It went to a foundation that supports the United Nations work. So Ted Turner steps forward that big gift. And along the way, he chastises his fellow billionaires saying, come on, guys, like, get, get a move on it. Right. Uh, not long after, uh, Bill Gates makes his huge gift to really scale up the, the Gates Foundation. 
other philanthropists, Pierre Omidyar, who started eBay, Jeff Skull, a bunch of these people, Michael Dell, Steve Case, a number of these new tech uh, billionaire types start to create their foundations. And then in recent years, we, we've seen things just ramp up even more dramatically. A lot of these hedge fund people, the big Wall Street money that's emerged in the last 20 years through hedge funds, a lot of that is being harnessed to philanthropy. It's not just George Soros anymore mm-hmm. as a hedge fund guy giving away a lot of money. It's a, a bunch of these people. And, I mean, for me, as somebody who writes about this field all the time, it's it's head spinning, right? right. Every time you turn around, right. there's another billionaire right. showing up with <laughs> some huge new initiative to conquer this or that problem. You're like, wait a minute, we're just – it's hard to keep track of these people at some point. <laughs> so I wonder how philanthropy – um, intersects with government. Like, obviously, the government's got way more money than any single individual person. Um, but do you see big givers actually changing the way that government operates and, like, how government deploys its funds? The big picture here is that government is in decline and philanthropy is rising. And so by decline, I mean that Now and through the foreseeable future, government is going to have fewer discretionary resources to try new things, to solve problems, to be an agent of change. More and more of the money that government spends is going to go to mandatory entitlements and uh, you know, things like Social Security, Medicare, pensions at the local level, servicing uh, of huge debts, both federally and, and locally, mm-hmm. and the amount of money left over for things like uh, medical research, education, environmental protection, space exploration. That pot, uh, as a percentage, is just going to get smaller and smaller. Already, that non-defense federal discretionary spending is at the lowest level as a percentage of GDP since Eisenhower was in office. Meanwhile, if you look at the states, you know, they're all, many of them are are dealing with some really serious fiscal issues. Connecticut, Illinois, cities are going bankrupt, right? So there's a a kind of growing vacuum in terms of government's ability to be an agent of change. And philanthropy is moving into that vacuum. Often it's being pulled in by some urgent demands to, to sort of make up for the falling, you know, government budgets. I mean, for science research, for example, you see philanthropists who are stepping forward because, they, you know, they, they know about all these cuts that have been made to the National Science Foundation. Uh, often these university donors to public universities step forward when, when that money, you know, uh, to state universities has been falling. Uh, donors right. have tried to make up the difference there. But of course, with their largesse comes influence. You have talked about the fact that many of these very rich givers are indeed concerned about income inequality. How do they think about that in terms of, like, clearly, here they are having amassed so much power. How do they square the situation in which they find themselves with the reality of that, wow, this elite is just incredibly powerful at this moment? (laughs) Yeah, well, there is an irony in, in terms of the the winners in our society being concerned about the losers. It's true. Many of them are worried about inequality. But in my experience, they tend to see the issue rather narrowly. And they use their philanthropic gifts to try to expand equality of opportunities so more people can climb up the ladder. Uh, you know, you see that, for example, and they're backing these charter schools, you know, that a lot of these donors want to help these kids from the inner city 
uh, get the best possible education and go mm, to college. Yeah, yeah. What they don't do, most of these donors, is they don't question the overall structure of contemporary capitalism, uh, which has placed so much power in the hands of those who own capital and control corporations. Very few of them underwrite any work that kind of critiques the system systemically, mm -hmm. uh, looks for ways to really empower uh, labor so that it gets its share, fair share of the pie mm -hmm. uh, that's being created by our economy. Few of them give money to kind of progressive economic justice work. So in theory, they're concerned about inequality. In practice, it's a pretty narrow take that they have on this problem. So you've met, you know, a bunch of these people who've given their money away. After you talk to somebody like Priscilla Chan, but other people that you've talked to, has it changed your view of the way the very wealthy give away money and the impact that that's going to have really on all of us? Because if it changes the government or it changes education or it changes healthcare or science, it's going to change everything. You know, inter interestingly, I find I can relate to these big philanthropists <laughs> because uh, many of them are just – they grew up in middle or upper middle class families, and you know they got wildly lucky mm -hmm. uh, in, in terms of their their profession or who they married, uh, and now have a tremendous amount of of money, and and with that money the ability to do something positive. And a lot of them have a sense of real hyper agency. You know, one of the donors I talked to in my book said. When she reads the newspaper in the morning, she feels like she can do something about the, right. the problems that she reads about. Most of us, when they, we read the newspaper, <laughs> just sort of, you know, gnash our teeth and there's nothing right. we can do. But if, right. if you have a foundation, you can do something. Right. And so, uh, I mean, I can relate to these people. Many of them are trying to do the, the best job they can. They have the best of intentions. But the system overall, I think, is very troubling. I mean, these are all rational actors who are trying to maximize their mm -hmm. their influence. But by doing so, they're acting in a way that can sort of exacerbate civic inequality, which is high already with so many people already feeling like their voices don't count in this country. And I think, I hope at the very least, these philanthropists will be more mindful of that and try to be more you know, do a lot more listening, be more responsive, try to ensure that their money is is not necessarily reflecting their preferences, uh, but really is allowing other people to speak and put their voices out there in the public debate, people with, with less power uh, or from historically marginalized communities. David Callahan is the editor of the website Inside Philanthropy. He's also the author of The Givers, Wealth, Power, and Philanthropy in a New Gilded Age. David, thank you so much. Great to be here. Thank you. Another quick tidbit from David Callahan that showcases how things have changed when it comes to giving money away. Rich donors, and also regular Americans, now donate more money to help alleviate poverty overseas than the United States federal government. We've got a link to the Chan Zuckerberg pledge to give away their billions. And I'll give you one guess as to where that link is. It's at facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. Assume 
you get a monetary windfall. Not a big windfall, but something that you know might put a smile on your face. $40, say. What is the best way to spend that money to maximize your happiness? It may not surprise you that even though all of us want to be happier, we often make terrible decisions about how to spend our money. Ashley Willen studies how we spend and what kinds of decisions boost our quality of life. She's an assistant professor of business administration at Harvard Business School. Ashley, welcome. Thank you so much. So first, um, let's look at that question of whether a modest amount of money can buy some happiness, uh, which you just looked at in a study. So if you have that $40 and you want to maximize the happiness that you'll get out of it, what are the various sort of approaches that you can take? Yeah. So we asked a group of 100 working adults at a science museum in Canada, if we gave you 40 bucks, how would you spend this money on a Saturday or Sunday to promote happiness? And we found that most people said that they would buy stuff for themselves. They would go clothes shopping. Some people said that they would go out for a meal. Some people said that they would donate that money. And a very, very small percentage of people said that they would use that money to save themselves time by, like, hiring a house cleaner or getting someone to mow their lawn. And then when we actually ran an experiment where we gave a group of working adults, 60 working adults, $40, and we told them in one weekend that they had to spend this $40 on stuff, and then the next weekend had to spend that money in a way that would save them time, house cleaning, lawn mowing, getting a meal out, we saw that people who spent money on time-saving purchases, so on the weeks where they made that purchase, they spent 40 bucks to save themselves time, they reported greater end-of-day happiness and less stress than when they bought a material purchase for themselves. So our studies together suggest that people don't do a very good job of knowing what's going to make them happier. They think that they should be spending that $40 to buy themselves clothes or sneakers, something cool. And what we actually find is that the very few people in our sample who said that they would spend that money on time, when we actually give people money, that those people are better off. How do you measure happiness, by the way? One of the best ways of measuring how happy someone is is by asking them. We're very good at knowing how we're feeling. So we ask people, how happy are you feeling? And this tracks with more objective measures, even economic growth. So there's been a lot of research validating the self-report measures that we use in our study. Do we know anything about short-term happiness versus long-term happiness? Because if I go out and buy a shirt, I may be moderately happy today, (laughs) but I mean, I can wear it for a long time, presumably. Yeah. So, I mean, in the context of our studies, we found that people who buy time, they report greater overall life satisfaction. So it seems that these mood benefits that we get from spending money on time-saving purchases seem to accumulate and then promote greater overall life satisfaction over time. So if people are overall happier who, you know, hire somebody to clean their house or hire somebody to mow their lawn than people who go out and just, like, buy a pair of earrings or buy some boots or whatever it is, why don't more of us do the, like, paying somebody for their services kind of thing rather than buying the stuff kind of thing? We're studying this question right now because it's fascinating. In our research, we surveyed over 800 millionaires, and those are clearly people who can afford to to pay for time-saving services. And just over half of those millionaires said that they spent money to save themselves time. So even among people who can clearly afford it, Mm -hmm. there seems to be this something getting in the way of us spending money to save Mm -hmm. time. And so there's a couple of different things that I think are going on. The first, and this may be no surprise to (laughs) anyone listening, is that we're not 
very good planners. We always think we're going to have more time tomorrow than we do today. Mm. There's been research that has studied this effect, um, and they call it the yes, damn effect. (laughs) Meaning, (laughs) I always say yes to things, but then when that time actually comes, oh, shoot, like, I really shouldn't have said yes to that. Why did I think I was going to have enough time to, you know, as an academic, write that book chapter or get on that plane or... And so, I am among it, the many people who do this. Well, because if you ask me something and the thing is in four months, I'm like, well, sure, because, well, A, that'll never come. And B, I'm sure in four months I'll have things better figured out than I have them figured out today. But of course, four months hence, I'm exactly the same person as I am right now. And then I still have to do that thing. Exactly. And so time-saving purchases require a bit of future planning. It requires us to know that we're going to be busy next Saturday, that we're going to be so busy that maybe it would be helpful to have someone clean our house instead of us doing it ourselves. And so that's one reason, just asking people in our, our research, just getting people to think that they'll be as busy tomorrow as they are today, encourages people to buy time-saving services. I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub. I'm talking with Ashley Willens, an assistant professor at Harvard Business School and co-author of a study looking at when money does and does not buy us happiness. There's one category of stuff we didn't really talk about. So we talked about buying things, physical things you can just take home with you and enjoy. Um, But that doesn't seem to make you nearly as happy as like having a clean house. How about the experiences? Like, okay, I've got $40. $40 is enough for a nice meal for me and somebody else. Let's go out. And I mean, it won't save me any time. In fact, it'll take time. But it's like a fun thing to do. Yeah. So there's been a lot of past research showing that experiential purchases, going out to a really nice meal, going to the movies are good for happiness. Hmm. We're not saying that by, you know, buying experiences is not as good for happiness as time-saving purchases. But I think that time-saving purchases are a more overlooked category of spending, whereas most research and most people think about buying themselves into positive experiences, most people don't think about spending money to buy themselves out of negative experiences, like cleaning. Right, like my sink is full, and this is every time I go by it, I think, oh, man, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, exactly, and so our research is some of the first to, to look at this question and say, not only can we use money to buy ourselves into positive experiences, we can also use our discretionary income to buy ourselves out of negative experiences. And that also promotes happiness. I'm interested in how different kinds of people make decisions about money. Um, are there specific examples you can give where wealthier people and poorer people make different kinds of decisions about money? So there are some examples where people with less money actually are more likely to buy durable goods. They're more likely to buy things for their home, to buy clothes, to buy purchases. And that's because you can have that right now. That's Mm -hmm. a very certain purchase. So if you don't have very much money, maybe you're worried about making an investment of an experience. You might be, what if that meal isn't good? Maybe then I could have spent that that $40 on something practical. There's some inherent uncertainty with these other kinds of ways you can spend money. And so people with less money want to make more certain purchases and material purchases are more certain. Hmm. Do you see differences around other, uh, you know, like do people as they age make different kinds of decisions about money and happiness? Yeah. So there, some of our research shows that older individuals are more likely to give up money in order to have time. So it seems they recognize the value of their time more than the rest of us. They're getting wiser over time. They're realizing what is paying off for them. Mm -hmm. 
It's interesting about this whole concept of uh, saving time and the potential perils of it, because things like dishwashers and microwaves, they were originally marketed. The whole idea was this is going to save you so much time. Um, And not that it hasn't saved people a lot of time, but nobody really seems to be in touch with that time saving. I mean, they've just sort of moved on. That's been incorporated into their lives and they still feel really busy. We got used to it. Right. This is hedonic adaptation. But will that happen if you hire somebody to clean your house? And you'll just like, at the beginning, you're like, this is amazing. My house is so clean. I don't have to do anything. And then after a while, you know, you expect it. And it's, I I wonder if just like the happiness diminishes. It's totally possible. We see that effect with a lot of things. When you start a new exercise program, when you join a club, you get all the benefits Mm -hmm. right up front. Mm -hmm. And one thing that my collaborators and I have talked about is if you get a weekly house cleaning service, match that service with an activity like a hobby in which you're constantly learning. Hmm. So then not only are you having your house cleaned, but you're also pairing it with an experience or an activity that's positive in which you could experience increasingly, you know, increasing returns on that on that investment, like learning a new language or playing the guitar. So you mean it's buying you time to like learn French or something and then you realize like all this time has bought me this ability exactly to get better and better at this language so if you use money to buy time and then use that time in a very deliberate and thoughtful way that's probably when you're going to get the most benefit over the long run do people who are salaried workers think differently about money than people who are hourly workers and like hourly workers could go all the way from working in in you know um, a fast food restaurant to being a very high paid lawyer who makes hundreds of dollars an hour but still they're not salaried right I just wonder if that makes you think differently about time if like every 10 minutes or every half hour or something is compensated simply you know in these little chunks yes so salaried workers and hourly workers do think about their time in very different ways we have one one paper showing that just reminding people about the economic value of their time makes them less likely to help the environment even if it takes five minutes to fill out a f- petition mm. or to a little bit longer to recycle. So mm. just even the act of thinking about the economic value of time makes people want to be less social, makes people want to be less pro-social. Mm. In the context of buying time, hourly wage workers, both at the higher and lower income spectrum, are less likely to give up money in order to have more time. Huh. Probably, again, because they say they're thinking, I know exactly how much my time is worth. (laughs) That's right. And I can do this myself and save myself X dollars. Right. See, I think a lot of people think, look, the reason that I'm cleaning my bathroom and not hiring somebody to clean my bathroom is because I have a job and I work let's say, five days a week, as many people do. I have Saturdays and Sundays off. And, you know, I mean, either I can clean it for free or I can pay somebody and then I just have less money to do whatever, including like save for retirement. And you know what I mean? And Saturday, nobody compensates me for my time. So my time is free and I might as well use it to do something useful. What's wrong with that way of thinking? I think that's a fair point, but I think you should think about almost your discretionary income as a portfolio. So setting aside a certain amount of money every month that you're going to spend on whatever it is you want. And that's your discretionary income. That doesn't come out of the pot of money that you're going to spend on retirement savings. And then thinking about that pot of money 
it's easy to think, oh, well, I should, you know, it's easy to get caught up in online shopping or to spend, be not very deliberate about what we, how we spend that discretionary income. And so I think our research points to the idea that we need to sit down with our discretionary income every month and budget for time-saving purchases, budget for experiences, and maybe instead of thinking about this is what I spend and this is what I save, still do that, say this is what I'll spend and this is what I'll save. But in that spending category, being more deliberate and thoughtful about the kinds of different spending choices that you'll make to promote happiness. Do you feel like you can change people? If if people, if, if you know from many studies that time will generally make you, if you have time, that'll be make you happier than just having a pile of money with no time. Um, are you able to convince people that, you know, I think you could spend your money in a far more effective way? I don't know the, the answer to this based mm-hmm. on the data that I have. But I imagine when something feels good, we're more likely to do it. Mm-hmm. So asking people to shift their behavior, giving them $40 maybe as part of our study, or asking people to think about these trade-offs in a more deliberate way so that people are maybe living closer to work and spending a bit more money on rent, but then not having a commute, and thinking about how their daily choices are either giving them more money or giving them more time. People tell me now, even after reading the the research that we've done, that this has shaped the way that I mm. think about the, the spending decisions I make. Mm. Because not only is, you know, are the spending decisions that I make on a daily basis affecting my money, but so often they're affecting how much time I have. What is the quality of that time? Mm. And so I think through slowly changing our behavior, we may then come to value time more than money taking a toll bridge and saving a few minutes stuck in traffic every day. Small decisions over time in which we're giving up money to have more free time Hmm. may then inform what we care about and in turn change our values. Ashley Willens is an assistant professor of business administration at Harvard Business School. She's the co-author of a study looking at the value of buying free time. Ashley, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. We've got a link to Ashley Willen's paper on the value of time, plus coverage of her study in the Washington Post that's at our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Alec Graney and Rowena Lindsay. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.